0: Well, happy Father's Day. Hope you have a, (laughs) you're welcome. Um, Hope you have a good one. Uh, This morning we were sitting around the breakfast table and I had Gray in my lap and uh, he's two, if you don't know Gray. And um, Bethany said, do you love your daddy? And he said, yeah. And then at that moment there was a, a bird outside that he saw and he said, a bird. And, you know, he was pretty excited about the bird, and so I wanted to know where I ranked. And so <laughs> so I asked him. I said, do you, do you love your dad or the bird more? And he very quickly responded, the bird. <laughs> so I said, well, that's fair. The bird can fly. I cannot fly, so. so. We'll see, uh, see what he says later on today. Maybe I'll ask him again. But I hope your Father's Day is good and you express gratitude and appreciation uh, to, your, to your dad today. Uh, open up to Genesis chapter 3. I figured there was no better Father's Day sermon than talking about the consequences of our first father, Adam's sin. So <laughs> that's where we land this morning. Um, not intentionally at all. But Genesis chapter 3. I'll never forget a few years ago uh, watching TV, and it was a, right after a natural disaster. Um, I, it may have been a, an earthquake or something like that, and of course there's you know, 24-hour news coverage about this disaster and the aftermath of it, and uh, they had this celebrity uh, on TV and her desire was to help people, and you know she had a charitable organization and they were gonna provide aid to the people, and that's obviously a good thing to do, um, and so she was talking, and the, the interviewer was asking her some questions, and uh, she, was, she was specifically talking about how really people are fundamentally good and kind at heart. And, you know, they just, uh, they're good, everybody's good, kind at heart, you know, and all that. And then on the screen behind her, there was video footage of people taking advantage of the natural disaster and looting in the streets, afterwards. And, I, you know, it was, it was just an amazing juxtaposition and the, the dissonance between what she was saying and expressing this fundamental view of human beings versus what was going on behind her. I, I really, obviously, have never forgotten that. Um, and I think that's probably how a lot of people view human beings is that we are fundamentally good and want to do good. But yet when you look around at the world and you you see the reality of life and what goes on, it's obvious that that is not true. Theologians have said that human depravity is the one aspect of Christian doctrine that we can objectively prove to be true, that human beings are broken and distorted and Our hearts are wicked and our hearts are evil. And we do occasionally do good things. We want to help people, but at root, we're self-centered and broken and do wicked things. It's really easy to prove it, I think, because you look around at the world and and what goes on and people steal and murder and rape and pillage and exploit one another in all sorts of ways all the time. And all of that, all those actions, all those desires come from hearts that are guilty before God, that are alienated from God, and that are darkened spiritually. They're dead. And when Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, a basic need of the human heart was cut off. They were made for relationship with God and fellowship with God without anything between them to have communion with God, and that was cut off, and now we try to fill that void with all sorts of things, and our darkened hearts pursue happiness and satisfaction in all sorts of other ways, sinful ways, that hurt other people, and there are tragic results from that. The disruption that happened in Genesis 3, sometimes it's easy to read this passage as you know, uh, sort of distant and unrelated to the world in which we live today. But the passage that we studied a few weeks ago, and now we're seeing the ongoing implications of that in in this passage today, the second part of this today. But this passage, this disruption in the relationship between God and human beings is is like a nuclear explosion that has gone off in creation. And in a nuclear explosion, the radiation poisoning goes out and and destroys, and disrupts, and corrupts everything around it. And that's exactly what has happened here with the sin of Adam and Eve. The poison of sin and of darkened hearts has spread out and impacted all of creation. And you and I are continuing to see the results of that and to feel the impact of that today. It's impossible to understand the world in which we live, and it's impossible to even understand our own struggles in this world without careful attention to Genesis chapter three, and specifically to the results of sin in verses eight through 24. So let me remind you what we're doing today. This is the second part of this study of verses eight through 24. And we started out looking at three outcomes of the first sin that dramatically shape life today. Three outcomes of the first sin that dramatically shape life today. And this passage is as fresh today as it was when Moses wrote it thousands of years ago. You can see the results of this being played out all around us and in our own lives today. And so we started this last week in verses 8 through 13 by talking about alienation as the first outcome of this this first sin here. And if we were to read through these verses again, we won't take the time to do that, but you would see the immediate disruption in the relationship between God and human beings. Adam and Eve run and try to hide. They try to cover themselves. They're no longer walking openly with God and enjoying his presence in the garden. Instead, they are fearful, they are guilty, and they're ashamed of what they've done. And then, as their relationship with God has been disrupted, now their relationship with one another has had that nuclear explosion go off as well. And Adam turns and blames his wife, whom God had given to him as a gift and as a companion. And instead of taking responsibility for what he had done wrong and the sin that he had committed, instead he turns and blames her and blames God in the process. You too are the problem, not me here. That alienation that we saw is... It's a vandalism of God's good gifts. God's perfect creation has been vandalized and corrupted. And when that vandalism takes place, it cannot be ignored. And that's our second outcome, is there's condemnation. Alienation first, disruption in divine human relationships, in human-human relationships, and between human beings and the environment. We'll even see that further today. But God responds to the disruption and the corruption of his good creation by laying down some judgments in verses 14 through 19. And we got partway through this last week, and we're going to finish this and see our third outcome this morning. But in verses 14 to 19, God addresses each of the three participants in the first sin. He begins with the serpent in verses 14 and 15. And as he lays down these judgments on the serpent, there's no hope for the serpent. There's nothing good for the serpent that will come out of this. Instead, there's humiliation and defeat for the serpent. Let me read these verses. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, in these words of judgment on the serpent, there are words of hope for Adam and Eve. The fact is that a descendant of the woman will defeat and overcome the work of the serpent here. And after promising this judgment on the serpent in verses 14 and 15, God then turns to the second participant in this first sin, which is the woman. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, keep in mind the flow of this passage here, okay? So, obviously, verse 16 comes after verse 15. And in verse 15, you have the promise and the hope that a descendant of the woman will overcome and will defeat the serpent. And so the promise is that that Eve, the woman, will have children, and she can place her hope and her expectation in her children and in the line that will come through her. And so the means of her salvation, the means of the defeat of the serpent, is going to come through her having children. And this is the original plan that God had for Adam and Eve anyway in chapter one. They were to multiply. They were to fill the earth with image bearers. And so that task is still necessary for them. But the victory that will come won't come without pain. It will come through suffering for that descendant, certainly, but also for the woman as she participates in that task. Look again at the first part of verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children of course the man and the woman are both necessary for children to be born for this task to be accomplished but she's going to experience the greater burden in this area and as you look at this the wording is pretty intense here i will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing your sorrow, your anguish as you bear children is going to be dramatic and is going to be significant. When uh, Bethany and I lived in California a few years ago, uh, we lived there for about four years. While we lived there, Bethany worked in a hospital and she worked on the labor and delivery unit, which was a pretty cool place to work. And so she has been intimately involved in the birth of many, many children. and has seen many children born. She could confidently attest to the reality of this verse in the difficulty of children being born. But I, you know, I, I heard her tell stories about being in the delivery room for children to be born and what she did as a nurse, but I had never obviously been in the delivery room for this to happen. And so in 2007, Caitlin, our first, was born. And so I was in the delivery room. And so when, when we got to the hospital, I did, you know, she goes off to work, she, she does this job, she talks about it, but I'd never been there to experience it before. And so I go in with her, and when I saw what the nurses did, and I saw this whole process, I said to her, this is what you do every day? This is, you are awesome. <laughs> like, why? Why did I say that? My response was like that because there really is nothing quite like the birth of a child. It's an amazing experience to watch, probably not to have in some cases. (laughs) But as believers, the birth of a child is always a reminder of this passage. And it's always a reminder of the deep consequences of sin. Labor is hard. The anguish is deep. Sin is real, but at the same time, we respond with such joy and it's exciting to see the birth of a child, I think because of the hope that is promised in this passage. Because despite the difficulty, the end always points to verse 15. And as Eve went through the consequences of sin and the suffering and the difficulty and anguish of labor, the end result she knew would be the defeat of the serpent and the overcoming of sin. And she knew that the very means of salvation would come through the painful judgment on sin. And so I think for, for each person who has children here, each and every birth points to this reality the dual reality of judgment and consequences of sin, but it points to the hope and the joy and the salvation that ultimately will come through Christ. And so it's a a hard and a beautiful experience all at the same time. But there's another consequence, consequence, a specific one that she's going to experience as well. Look at the rest of verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, what does it mean for her desire to be contrary to her husband? Well, I think the best way to understand this is to maybe flip a page over to chapter 4 and verse 7. This is the same word that's used in chapter 4, verse 7, the word desire. God's talking to Cain here after he's killed Abel. Verse 7 says, If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so in chapter 4 and verse 7, the way that this word is used is to talk about the, the battle here. Sin is trying to control and sin is trying to master Cain. There's a fight here. There's difficulty in the relationship. They're contrary to one another, sin and Cain. And so I think what God is saying back in chapter three to the woman is the harmony in your marriage relationship has been broken by sin. We've seen this throughout Genesis one to three that God has placed the man in the role of the covenant head. He's the leader in the relationship. And now there's going to be conflict in that relationship as a result of sin. The woman is going to try to overcome the roles in marriage and usurp his leadership and dismiss the roles. And there's going to be conflict. One author said, said it this way, and I thought this was really helpful. To love and to cherish, we hear that often in the, the vows for marriage, to love and to cherish has become to desire and dominate. And I think that's right. I think Conflict has come into the marriage relationship. But the conflict is going to be further enhanced and frustrated because of the end of verse 16. But he shall rule over you. Now, this is not calling for the answer to this conflict to be that men dominate women with a heavy hand. That in and of itself is a sinful twisting of what God originally designed in creation. It's not what it's calling for here. What is God's original design and creation? Well, I think we've seen this in chapters one and two for Adam to benevolent, benevolently lead in sacrificial service, but I think we see this even clearer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does his leadership look like? His leadership looks like intentional, sacrificial service for her. And what's God's original design for the wife? Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so this is the creational design for the man to lead in sacrificial service. And as he does that, it makes it easy for the woman to follow. But man, this has been disrupted by the fall. And I think that's what chapter 3 and verse 16 is getting at here. The marriage relationship is going to suffer tremendously because of sin. It's going to be difficult. Wives will try to dominate husbands. Husbands will try to dominate wives and lead with a heavy hand, an authoritarian dictator. Husbands will fail to be servant leaders. They'll be lazy bums and passive and expect the wife to do everything. What do you mean, help with the dishes? Both of those, both sides of this, happen in the marriage relationship now. It's a result of sin. Now, I don't want to leave this part of the passage with you expecting for all of this terrible conflict and drama all the time in marriage. That's a reality sometimes, and each of us gets into a marriage relationship with another sinner, and we bring sin into the relationship ourselves. But marriage does not have to be overwhelmed by conflict and difficulty and the abuse of these God-given roles. The Bible says, consistently describes the marriage relationship as one of the great joys of life. Proverbs 18 and verse 22 tells us that the one who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 5.19 tells husbands to always be intoxicated with the love of your wife. Not any other woman, but the love of your wife is a gift from God. Song of Solomon, I know you're nervous when I say Song of Solomon, but Song of Solomon 8.7 says this, many waters, this is talking about the marriage relationship, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised, why? Because there's nothing in this life that reaches the value and the joy that can be had in the marriage relationship. It's an unbelievable gift of God, and I think we saw that, pre-fall in Genesis chapter 2. It's an amazing thing. And so I think marriage is maybe one of the clearest examples of how after the fall, the gifts of God are both glorious and they are a grind sometimes because of our sin, because of the darkness of our human hearts. So if you're married today, rejoice in the gift that God has given but also understand the impact of sin on your marriage. Understand that you're both broken by the fall, but also understand the example of the love of Jesus Christ for the church and the way in which the church responds to that sacrificial service and leadership and make that the model for your marriage and enjoy the good gift that God has given Back in Genesis 3, God now turns from the woman and the judgment that will come to her to the one who is primarily responsible for this whole mess, and that's Adam. Beginning in verse 17, he speaks to Adam. And this is the longest of the three words of judgment. He spoke to the serpent and then the woman, and now he speaks the longest words of judgment to the man. And this word of judgment here unfolds in three parts, and I want to work those three parts out for, for you. First of all, in verse 17, God makes it absolutely clear how Adam has sinned, that he is the responsible party. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. I mean, it's very specific and very clear. What had Adam done? God spells it out here. Now he doesn't do this with Eve, does he? He simply recounts the two judgments, the areas where she will face conflict in her life, in her relationship with her husband, and in having children. But here he specifically lays out Adam's sin. What had Adam done? First of all, he reversed the order of creation. Adam was the one primarily responsible. He was the covenant head, he was the leader. And instead, he listened to the voice of his wife. Everything was turned upside down. He was with her when she was being tempted by the serpent and he didn't do anything about it. He accepted the serpent's spin on things. He wasn't deceived by the words of the serpent like the woman was, He rebelled against God and broke the command fully aware that he was breaking the command. It's exactly what God says in verse 17. Of which I commanded you. God's reminding him, look, Adam, I told you this. I gave you one command. You shall not eat of this fruit. You disobeyed. Adam can't shift the blame here. He can't pin this on anybody else. It's his responsibility. And the heart of his sin was a disregard for God's word and a rebellion against God's command. And I think this is why Paul sees Adam as the the representative of all humanity because of the language God uses here. It is your responsibility here. He's the first Adam. The weight falls on him for the sin of the world. And really, it's amazing the way God describes this here. I mean, think about how simply God puts this. I think sometimes we, we complicate sin, right? Like, and I get it. I, I probably do this sometimes too. We tend to, okay, what's the motivation behind it? How are, we, how are we participating in this sin? What are the steps that lead to sin? But what God does here is he says, look, Adam, I told you not to do it and you did it. It's very, very straightforward and very, very simple. Adam chose to defy God. It's like the child who you say, don't touch the cookies. And the child looks at you and reaches out his hand and touches the cookies. That's exactly what Adam does. He understood the prohibition. He heard God's command in chapter 2. He knew it. He knew what he was not allowed to do, and he did it anyway. And I think it would help us to understand sin in a little more of a basic way sometimes. God says, Don't do this, do this. And our response is to trust his word, trust his goodness, and obey him. So what's the result? We'll look at the rest of verse 17 and then on into verse 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat Bread, And so Adam's primary sphere of work, the ground, would now fight against him. In Genesis 2, the ground brought forth all sorts of good fruit, good for him to eat, pleasant to the eyes. And now Adam is going to work the ground just like he was in Genesis chapter 2. But it's going to be very difficult. Rather than good and pleasant food, now it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles it's going to be hard and the end result in some ways will be the same he's going to eat food I mean that's what was going to happen in Genesis 2 he was going to cultivate the ground he was going to work the ground he's going to take care of the garden and he and his wife and his children would eat food and he's going to do the same thing here but it's going to be a lot more difficult He's going to provide food for his family, but it'll be hard. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And I think what this pictures is, this picture is a farmer who gets up before the sun comes up and it's still dark. And he goes out into the field and he takes his rudimentary tools here. He hops on his tractor nowadays and he works all day in the blisteringly hot and uncomfortable sun and he comes home and he eats his dinner and the sweat is literally dripping off of his nose into his food as he's eating and he's slouched over at the table because his back hurts and his hands have scratches and they're bleeding because of the thorns that he's interacted with all day and he's barely able to even enjoy his food because he's so tired. He's so exhausted. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. That's the reality that Adam received after his sin. Now, Just to be clear on this, this doesn't mean, the curse on the ground doesn't mean that the physical elements of creation, the ground, the trees, whatever else in creation, doesn't mean that those things are now sinful. God curses the ground because of our sin. he says that very clearly in verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of Adam's sin. So what's going to happen now is the physical elements are going to fight back and make it difficult for Adam to take dominion. That was the original task God had given him in chapter 1. Subdue the earth. Use the elements of creation to create human flourishing, to take dominion over the earth. And now they're going to fight back against you. It's not going to be easy for you to fulfill your task. Adam's sin has spoiled his environment. And the environment creation's plight is very much tied to ours. You can see this in Romans chapter eight. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, I think it's fascinating here that Paul chooses the imagery of a mother in labor to describe the creation. Now, the creation is waiting for freedom from the curse. We talked earlier about how one of the judgments on the woman is that she would endure hard labor, but at the end of that labor, ultimately, would come the Messiah who would free creation from the curse. And Paul chooses that imagery to describe the creation groaning and in anguish now under the curse like a woman in labor anticipating and waiting for the child to be born. And there's hope there, but it is difficult. And I think in the pain and difficulty of that right now, it's a reminder, a constant reminder to us that we are waiting and we are anticipating the moment when creation will be free from the curse of sin and when we will be free as well. But our lives right now exist in perpetual labor pains. That's easy for a man to say. But that's the way Paul describes the creation now. Waiting. It's hard. It's difficult. But on the flip side, that doesn't mean that our work is somehow sinful now. Work precedes the fall. And so work is a good gift from God. God commanded Adam to work before the fall. And we're still to work and to find joy, just like the marriage relationship. God gave that as a gift to us, and we are to find joy and happiness and satisfaction in that relationship. And the same thing is true of our work. But now our work is going to be tainted by a cursed ground, by difficulty, It's going to be frustrating and hard, and ultimately, our work will end in death. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam will struggle with the ground his whole life He will struggle to gain mastery over the ground, to take dominion over the ground. But ultimately, Adam will lose that struggle. And the ground will take dominion over him. He will succumb to it and he will be returned to the dust from whence he came. And it's amazing to read this and understand. Human beings are always trying to get out of this. We're constantly trying to overcome the ground, we're constantly trying to defeat this struggle. I don't know if you've read recently, but there's a, there's a growing interest in what's called transhumanism. Have you heard of this? It's where it's the belief, it's the hope, really, that human beings can evolve beyond our current mental and physical limitations. And it's, it's growing in popularity because people want to overcome the curse here of Genesis chapter 3. They want to defeat the decay of our bodies and our minds and not return to the dust. But the very testament, the the transhumanism is itself a very testament to this reality here. We don't defeat the curse here. There's only one who doesn't give in to the decay that happens and is overcome by the ground. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes in the ground and then gloriously comes out of the ground in victory over this curse that is laid down here. And then we all follow in his wake and we will one day be physically resurrected as well. So when you look at all of these judgments here, they are broad in scope and impact. One author said it this way. The sentences touch every aspect of human life, marriage and sexuality, birth and death, work and food, human and non-human. In all these areas, one could speak of death encroaching on life. Disharmony reigns supreme. Now, this is not a very encouraging place to be, and I'd hate to end here this morning. And we're not going to end here. That's not where this story ends. And if you read Genesis chapter 3 as a whole, the entire flow of this chapter recounts to us the elements of the gospel. Because what happens is, is man sins and rebels against God and there's condemnation and judgment for that sin, but then God in his goodness gloriously provides redemption from that sin and from that brokenness. And we've talked in this series here on Genesis 1 to 3 over and over again about how these chapters paint God as amazingly good, a fountain of life overflowing with goodness. And you're going to see that here at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. The last outcome of the first sin is that God provides provision. He meets their needs. And despite the difficulty ahead, I mean, can you imagine hearing these judgments laid out if you're Adam and you know what life is going to look like in the future for you? But despite that, Adam responds to these judgments by trusting God's word. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living So Adam knew God's original command to be fruitful and multiply. And then Adam heard what God said to both the serpent and the woman, that there would be a seed that would come and that she would have children. It would be difficult, she'd have pain, but that she would have children. And so Adam is hearing God's word and rather than rebelling against God's word and distrusting his word, here he names his wife Eve because he expects her to be the mother of all living. And so this is an act of faith. He heard what God said and he trusted that it was true and that it was going to come to pass. What a glorious change that is in Adam from doubting God's goodness and rebelling against it in the first part of chapter three to now believing what God says at the end of chapter three. And now I want you to notice how God responds to Adam's faith here. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Why is this significant? Well, Adam and Eve had, had tried to clothe themselves in chapter three, hadn't they? In chapter three in verse seven, they had tried to piece together plants and leaves and create clothes, but they really had only made loincloths. And they weren't doing a very good job of covering themselves, and so they felt like they had to hide from God. They were only able to partially cover themselves. But here, after sin and after the judgment that God lays down for their sin, God provides for them what they cannot provide for themselves. That is the very definition of grace. God provides for them what they cannot provide for themselves. How does He do it? Look again in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God provides for them what they cannot provide for themselves by the death of an animal, by a sacrifice. God provides for them. This is the first instance of death that we have recorded in the Bible. But even this instance of death highlights God's grace and his kindness to them. And you can imagine being an Israelite and hearing this story read. And you're hearing that God killed an animal and clothed them, covered them with the skin of that animal. And you would have immediately thought of the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. How does a sinful Israelite approach the presence of God? Through the death of an animal, through the covering that an animal's death and blood provides. And I think this sets the stage for the Day of Atonement. There's one special day in the the Jewish calendar where sacrifices made to cover the sins of the nation, and ultimately this points to the death of Jesus Christ. But what Adam and Eve would have realized here is that despite their sin, despite their rebellion, God is going to provide for them. He's going to meet their needs. His goodwill has not been lost. He loves them. He's going to take care of them. And one of the implications of that is he cannot let them be permanently enslaved to sin. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now you notice there at the end of that verse, there's a dash. Because it ends mid-sentence. And what the author is trying to communicate with that is God speaking and cutting off his own sentence because he realizes the urgency of what needs to happen. Moses is trying to communicate urgency here with this. And so what does God do? Verse 23, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. God didn't just send Adam out, he drove him out. He was placed in exile outside of the Garden. Access to the Tree of Life was prohibited. Intimate communion with God face to face was no longer possible for Adam. But God's goodness was not lost. God's grace was not lost here. And so these three chapters, although difficult, end on the word of grace here. Despite all that has happened, God is going to provide. There's hope. There's anticipation of what the Lord will do. But but of course, the reality of sin is dramatic and significant, and you'll see that continue to be played out. So, This all brings us to the end of this series on Genesis 1 to 3. And my real hope in studying these three chapters is I want to prepare you to read the rest of your Bible. And that's really what we've been trying to do. We're trying to set the themes for the rest of Scripture because they're all here. The whole thing is set up from these three chapters We've seen a powerful, sovereign, good God create the world out of nothing. We've seen him place his own image in the world in order to fill the earth with more image bearers and to take dominion over the earth in order to make it a suitable dwelling place for God and man. We've seen God graciously begin that project and initiate that task by placing the man in a a special garden, a temple garden, gave him a delightful companion to enjoy fellowship with and to accomplish his task. We've seen the man and the woman rebel against God by doubting his goodness and disobeying his word. Then we've seen judgment and condemnation as a result, but we've also seen God respond to their sin with grace and with promises of hope and redemption through the suffering of a sacrifice who will come through the woman and will gain a great victory over the serpent. All of that sounds like a pretty good story to keep reading and to follow. And it's a good story with an amazing author. So I hope you'll read it. Let's pray. God, we're in awe of your grace. You are under no obligation to Show kindness to us. We are sinners. We have rebelled against you, but we see even here that you respond by providing for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. We need forgiveness. We need atonement. We need our sins to be taken away. We need new hearts. We need to be brought into your presence We need fellowship and communion with you, and we cannot gain any of those things on our own. We need your initiating grace. And we're so thankful that we have that through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the perfect sacrifice who dies for us and by his death wins a great victory over the work of the serpent. So that one day, the children of God, along with the entire created universe, will be brought back from the curse that is laid down here. We thank you for telling us this glorious story in your word, and we thank you even more that this is true, that this is the reality in which we live, and I pray that that would shape us and change us. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.